Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. was fun the politics of covid mandates and social controls wasn't that a hoot one of my best friends on the planet let's just say that many of my other friends and colleagues would say that he buys into some conspiracy theories which is obviously not how he sees things for example he was at one time and probably is still a 9-11 truther someone who believes that 9-11 was an inside job. And I have gathered that he believes a number of other things about the world that are, let's just say, very heterodox. But I'm not really sure because that's not the kind of thing he and I talk about. Our deep friendship is based on a mutual love of music. First of all, indie rock, but also older rock and roll and pop and country and blues and folk and jazz and world music and electronic stuff. You name it. And this dude has the best knowledge and taste in music of anyone I have ever met in my life. And I've known a lot of music lovers over the years. For this reason, uh, me and my buddy will be friends forever, even though we don't agree about many facts and political issues. My buddy was utterly opposed to COVID mandates from the very beginning. He never, never, not once wore a mask. He was never vaxxed. I'm pretty sure he thinks vaccines are some kind of genetically modified freakery engineered for some kind of heinous social ends. Moreover, my friend can't even believe that mature adults who value what he sees as their God-given individual sovereignty would go along with COVID mandates. He just can't believe it. Meanwhile, meanwhile, during COVID, I was over here like a fucking choir boy. When Fauci said jab, I asked when and where. I masked as long as there were mandates. I'm all vaxxed and boosted. I'm like, can you stick a vaccine in me once a month? Vax me to the maxi. If you take my friend's response and my response to public health mandates and put them on a spectrum, and maybe we can even make the spectrum even bigger by including folks who think we should all still be masking, uh, masking in social situations, You have the makings for what we call a controversy. And it was controversial, wasn't it? Indeed, for a while, it was something that became increasingly controversial and partisan. Well, it turns out that social controls aimed at public health have been controversial for a long time. That's one of the many things you learned from our guest, David Barnes, New book, Lazaretto, How Philadelphia Used an Unpopular Quarantine Based on Disputed Science to Accommodate Immigrants and Prevent Epidemics. Barnes, who is an associate professor of the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania, tells us the story of the Lazaretto, a quarantine station downriver from Philadelphia from the late 18th century to the late 19th century. And in some sense, the story continues to this day because Barnes is involved with the historical preservation of the site. 
along the way through a series of fascinating and beautifully rendered stories and character sketches, Barnes shows us just how controversial and regularly unpopular quarantine was. And yet, he argues it was also effective. Now, as you'll hear, this was not some rip from the headlines book that was trying to cash in on COVID. Barnes has been working on this since the first decade of this century. History just contingently made Barnes' book very, very timely. Very, very timely and also just great. It's a gorgeously written book, and I'm glad I got the chance to read it. I had a lot of fun talking with David Barnes. You'll see. Hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. You're welcome. So Lazaretto is a really neat and timely uh, book. It's also very prettily written, I think. If you know, When you're explaining to strangers, what do you say it's about and what were you trying to do with this book? Quarantine was complicated. I'm trying to um, explore the layers of complication involved in the practice of quarantine in the 19th century and um, sketch out how deeply quarantine as an institution was embedded in the life of a port city uh, mm -hmm. throughout the 19th century. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And when did you, when did you come to, when did you start working on this book? I mean, you know, with COVID and everything, it was like, you know, it's an obviously, it's a great topic, right? Um, but when did you start as a historian working on this? Yeah, well, COVID happened and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to whip up uh, a book in a few months. No, um, <laughs> no, I've been working on this book for um, 16 years now. Okay. <laughs> um, it's, and it started with... I'm embarrassed to say I had never heard of the Lazaretto, this old quarantine station outside Philadelphia. Um, I'm a historian of public health. I had written, at the time I found out about the Lazaretto, I had already published two books on the history of 19th century public health, yeah. and I should I should know these things. But um, when I arrived in Philadelphia, I did not know about the Lazaretto, and um, I was in a meeting with some colleagues planning a... Um, a sort of inter-university consortium course on the history of public health hmm. in Philadelphia. And one colleague um, mentioned the Lazaretto. She said we could have students um, visit the Lazaretto. And I thought, what is that? Where is that? And it kind of intrigued me. And um, the next time I was in the neighborhood, I stopped by the site of this old quarantine station this was like January 2006. It was a completely hmm. different world. And my scholarly thoughts were elsewhere, mm -hmm. otherwise occupied at the time. But the site of this place, this grand stately but decaying old building right by the edge of the river in this weirdly bucolic setting, hmm. um, surrounded by... The airport on one side, the 
busy Interstate 95 on the other side, industrial sites, the just complete incongruity of the site just grabbed hold of me. And I wondered, I couldn't stop thinking, what happened here? This place was obviously a big deal mm-hmm. in its day. What happened here? What? Why? Why so stately? Why this spot? And um, those questions just wouldn't let go of me. And so I scrapped my other research plans and started um, seriously researching this project in 2007. And it's it's been a long haul. I got involved in the actual preservation of the historic site itself. And it's taken me down many paths. It, it, in, this project has introduced me to the field of public history, to the field of historic preservation, to all kinds of things that I never That's cool, you man. Know, learned about in graduate school. Yeah. But it's been, uh, it's been a real eye-opener. That's so cool. And so, I mean, your your book is, I mean, we'll get into the guts of it a bit in a bit here, but like it's made up of um, a bunch of, a number of really fascinating case studies of like little stories that are really rich and full of detail. What kind of historical work did you do to, to find this stuff out? Where, where were you finding these stories? Well, um, for a long time, all I had were stories mm-hmm. and I had no kind of scholarly architecture or interpretation uh or or lessons to learn Mm. but um if you once i started digging i found stories everywhere i had the sense that you know there had to be stories behind this kind of ghostly hulk of a of a historic site and sure enough um in the archives a lot of my um research is built on the um the archives of the philadelphia board of health Mm -hmm. which ran the Lazaretto quarantine station um, during its years of operation. And um, almost all of the minutes of the Board of Health's daily meetings have survived. Not all, but almost all. That's a gold mine. And um, there are little tidbits hidden in archival collections here and there. But newspapers, 19th century newspapers... um, are another gold mine mm-hmm. and quarantine was just built into the fabric of commerce and everyday yeah. life. And so stories related to quarantine stories coming from quarantine, um, kind of revealed themselves in, uh, all over the place. Yeah. Um, one of the things you, you hope to counter in your book is our arrogance about, um, medicine before germ theory and antibiotics antibiotics. So you write, this is a story of how quarantine worked. And I wondered, you know, could you say a bit about, you know, like how, what you mean by our arrogance and also, you know, walk out, walk out this idea that quarantine worked for me a bit. Yeah. My, um, my bet noir in this business is this, uh, widespread assumption that medicine before, uh, bacteriology and antibiotics was nothing but barbaric superstitious yeah. nonsense at, at best yeah nonsense at best and actual butchery at worst mm-hmm. and um and honestly it drives me nuts yeah. <laughs> it's um it, you know there's a line from uh a really fascinating book by Stephen Johnson who is a kind of journalist, uh, 
science journalist yeah. who writes about historical topics occasionally, um, has a, a fascinating book on um, Jon Snow and the cholera epidemic, the um, cholera epidemic of uh, 1854. It's called the Ghost Map, and Johnson writes. Um, he has a he has a pithy sentence somewhere in that book where he says. How could so many smart people have been so grievously wrong for so long? Mm -hmm. And um, that's just the wrong question. It is absolutely the wrong question. Yeah. Um, the question I'm interested in is, um, in what ways were they right? How were they right? Yeah. What constituted right to them? So um, I try to avoid uh, dropping the E-bomb on my students' epistemology. Yeah. Uh, because it's just the the, the it's theory a of knowledge. philosophical term yeah. that um, that that makes people's brains freeze when they hear it. But um, uh, how what counts as true in different circumstances in different historical mm. eras, and and um, is absolutely fascinating and and incredibly important. And medicine and public health before bacteriology. Um, before uh, advanced biomedical technology was rich, complicated, empirical, um, results-oriented, and effective if you judge effectiveness uh, by the standards of the time. Yeah. And uh, so the, um, you know, my big sort of scholarly agenda, I guess, in my whole career has been to um, to sort of reconstruct the very rich and lively science and practice of public health mm. before bacteriology and to show that along with everything we've gained from bacteriology and the advances that have flowed from it uh, over the last century and a half mm -hmm. almost, um, we've lost something really important um, from the public health knowledge that flourished before germ theory. Mm. And recovering that lost knowledge, I think, is um, has a potential to open up new possibilities in uh, public health uh, knowledge and policy today. Mm -hmm. Can you just briefly say a, a bit more about what you think we've lost? Yeah, um, we've, in gaining the knowledge that disease, the, the problem of illness and disease in general mm -hmm. is actually um, constituted by individual disease entities, each of which has its own nature and its own cause, yeah. singular cause, microbial cause. Um, we've lost this idea that disease is the product of certain kinds of um, physical environments mm -hmm. and social arrangements. And um, particularly the idea that, that is, you know, um, born out in every investigation ever done historically that um, the number one cause of disease is poverty. Yeah. And, um, and various kinds of disenfranchisement and lack of access to certain basic resources. Mm -hmm. And um, my uh, my favorite sort of um, aphorism about what we've lost in public health comes from um, our colleague Chris Hamlin, 
um, who's now uh, emeritus at Notre Dame. And um, Chris wrote a brilliant book on um, public health in Britain in the age of Chadwick, hmm. public health and social justice, it's called. Hmm. And um, Chris says, um, let me see if I can remember the exact wording. Um, when the um, when the factors that um, support and sustain health are for the most part known, the map of the availability of those factors is the map of rights that exist in that society. Hmm. Um, it's just about the most profound thing that's uh, ever been written, I think, huh. about public health. Yeah, um, yeah that's, that's really good. Um, so, you know, I think our, our collective uh, reaction to COVID uh, demonstrated, if nothing else, that we're not used to reacting to epidemics. You know, I remember having to ex my son was four at the time and I remember having to explain to him that, you know, <laughs> my wife and I had never had to do these things before in our lifetime. Right. Mm -hmm. But as a host, as a historian, how do you give people a sense of what it was like to live you know, in a very different period where there was like wave after wave of of epidemics. So, for instance, you teach a you teach a class on epidemic history, right? For, so I do. Yeah, how do you I do. how do you try to give people a feel for that? Yeah. Um, well, the um, the best way is to is to give people a taste of what people said and wrote and felt about health and disease um, in a time where when epidemics were familiar mm -hmm. uh, and all too commonplace. Um, and it's not that I think it's um, it's sort of logical to assume that people accepted deadly epidemics as part of life. I don't think that's quite accurate. Yeah. Um, I think the, the impression that I get from reading uh, the primary sources from the late 18th century and uh, the first part of the 19th century is that um, people never accepted mm. epidemics and um, they never fully became accustomed to them. They did, um, they did become accustomed to the dread of impending epidemics mm -hmm. and um, they were desperate to um, to kind of allay that dread by preparing, by building an infrastructure, by you know, by by prayer, by policies, by um, uh, you know, by flight. Yeah, you know, exactly. simply the most the most common response to epidemics among people who had the means to to go anywhere else was simply to flee mm -hmm. and. Um, for better or for worse, that was actually the um, the best way to avoid yellow fever, which is the, the epidemic that is responsible for the Lazaretto's creation. Mm -hmm. um, I wondered, just as a kind of writerly decision, you have a couple of these boxes that lay out the diseases and what they are. There's one on yellow fever, and I think the, the other is on typhus. There might be one or two more in the book. Yeah. I just wondered how, what led you to that. I thought they were very helpful as a reader, but what led you there? Um, I'm always trying to put myself in my reader's head. Um, 
what is the reader expecting? What is the reader wanting? Um, how can I um, manipulate the reader's um, expectations and subvert them and surprise them? And um, But the one thing I never want to be is confusing, inaccessible, mm -hmm. or uh, difficult. <laughs> um, I want to be challenging, but I don't want to be difficult. Yeah. And um, it's just, I've just learned from speaking to audiences, from showing my work to um, all kinds of people, you know, fellow scholars and students and people who are not in the scholarly world at all. Um, uh, they always, always, always want to know what really causes yellow fever? Uh -huh. How, you know, how is it really spread? Um, what is typhus? Mm -hmm. You know, and what is it? look like what does it feel like um and i i accept that as much as i want people to project themselves back to a time where we didn't know any of those things we knew lots of other things yeah. about about yellow fever and about typhus um and we use different vocabulary to refer to them um it's still just um annoying yeah it's just frankly annoying for readers to go through this kind of narrative and this interpretation without without having the, those basic questions answered. Yeah. So I want to say, look, uh, I'm going to ask you to forget this in a minute, yeah. <laughs> but here's what, here's what we, th we think we know about these diseases today. Yeah. And, you know, you do, I think you do a great job of spelling out, um, you know, how, how they thought and, uh, and, you know, I tried to identify these diseases at the time. And, the, you know, the one that really I think you, you know, on top of there, this book is many different kinds of histories, I think. I mean, it's a history of public health, but there's a lot more going on here. And one of them, I mean, I thought you did a great job on that as like a sensory historian. And, mm. and you know, and I think this is something you've done before, in a, including in an earlier book, right? Like writing about smells as like the yeah. thing. So I mean, tell us a bit about tell us a bit about disease and smells during this period, and how they thought about smell as like a diagnosing tool and such. Yeah, um, I have been uh, interested in the senses and particularly in smell for a while, um, and that you know interest was was peaked in in my second book where foul odors played important role in the development of um, public health in late 19th century France. But um, uh, that exercise kind of attuned me to um, the extent to which our experience of the world and everyone's experience of the world at all times yeah. is shaped by the um, sensorium, by the sensory landscapes uh, in which we live and work and play. Yeah. Uh, so... So in this book, I thought I I want readers to, you know, disease is not an intellectual exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not an abstract experience. It's a bleeping physical experience. Yeah. And um, it's not pleasant. And I, I don't want to, I think, you know, there were times when I was writing drafts of different chapters where um, uh, some of my friends and people who had read drafts thought I was um, going a little bit too far in evoking, um, for example, the the smell of the cargo hold mm -hmm. of immigrant vessels um, in the 19th century just packed like sardine cans with 
desperately poor and starving immigrants who, you know, were just excreting and vomiting everywhere. Yeah. And um, I want, um, I don't want to rub readers' noses or any other parts of their bodies <laughs> yeah. in in these incredibly unpleasant environments, but I do want readers to confront mm. and um, and at least consider the experience of um, of living in this world and of encountering um, encountering these diseases either in one's one's own body or in the body of loved ones or mm -hmm. neighbors. Um, I just think that's part of I think that's part of good writing. Yeah. Is to sort of bring your reader into the world, you know, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And it's um for me it's part of good history just to just to sort of think about what it might have felt like to to be in that world. Yeah. So can you set the scene for us with the wave of yellow fever that struck Philadelphia in the, in the 1790s. I mean, what was what was it like to live there at the time during this period? I mean, I have a number of questions for you about this that that sure. decade, but set it up for us. Yeah, in the 1790s Philadelphia was the nation's capital. The nation was quite young, of course. Um and it was the nation's largest city and um busiest seaport. It was, you know, there's I don't know if you've seen, seen the musical Hamilton, but there's, <laughs> there's, there's this, you know, romanticization of New York in the 1770s mm -hmm. as um, the greatest city in the world, quote unquote. <laughs> and uh, I'm sorry, Lin-Manuel Miranda, <laughs> you are undoubtedly a genius, but the greatest city in the world? No, absolutely not. <laughs> um, New York was a backwater in... Um, uh, before 1800, and um, Philadelphia was uh, was where it's at, and you know Philadelphia was a backwater compared to uh, you know the great capitals of sure. Europe or China yeah. or the Middle East, but um, but Philadelphia was was where it's at in terms of it, as far as the United States was concerned, in, in um, as a place of learning, as a place of it was the medical capital. Uh, uh, of the United States. So, um, so even just as the nation's capital alone, it was a big deal when yellow fever struck in 1793 and, um, and, uh, killed, you know, 5,000 people out of a population of 50,000 yeah. in the space of a little over two months. Yeah. Just imagine, you know, imagine that today, 10% of the population dropping dead in two months. Yeah. Um, Terrifying, absolutely terrifying, and um, you know, it, it obviously disrupted the national government. Of course, the national government really wasn't much to speak of yeah. in the 1790s. Um, uh, uh, but it was um, it was a huge crisis, and the fact that it came back three more times later in that same decade, um, almost as uh, severely as it had in 1793 with just thousands upon thousands of deaths. Um, it was, um, it was absolutely horrifying to contemplate and it was starting to seem like the new normal. Like this was something that was going to be a regular feature yeah. of life in Philadelphia. And, 
um, it made some people, including Thomas Jefferson himself, um, wonder whether um, any large city in this landscape, in this part of the world, hmm. was sustainable, was habitable. And Jefferson actually wrote to several friends of his desire that the consequence of yellow fever would be to depopulate all cities. And he was not a fan of cities, right. as we know. Yeah. But um, uh, that was that was a real possibility in many people's minds wow. that Philadelphia would essentially cease to exist, and possibly all um, cities above a certain size would um, would cease to exist after um, after this kind of devastation. Mm -hmm. So it's in response to that, not just one epidemic, but um, this rapid fire succession of devastating epidemics that, um, you know, Philadelphia's leaders and the nation's leaders realized something's got to change. We've got to do something differently. And that um, resulted in, among other things, the establishment of a new state-of-the-art quarantine station um, farther from the city than the old quarantine station, which clearly wasn't working. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and the hope, at least, the desperate, defiant hope that these deadly epidemics could be kept at bay. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about, so I want to turn to the, the foundation of the new Lazaretto, the new quarantine station in a second, but could before we get there, can you give us a sense of like, you know, how did, you know, doctors and leaders of the city respond to at first? And also, I mean, it sounds like governing epidemics during this period was very difficult for all kinds of reasons, including like, you know, you say that there were quarantine rules, but they're being flouted left and right. There's really no policing of it. So can you say mm -hmm. both like, you know, what did they try and what were kind of barriers to success for them early on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, everything about these yellow fever epidemics was um, was extremely problematic and beyond the capability of anyone to uh, comprehend, much less like control. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, quarantine was in some ways the least of it. The, the the quarantine operation, as you said, was was poorly enforced. It was very leaky, um, and and obviously didn't stop these. Uh, terrible epidemics in the 1790s, but just providing care for so many sick people mm -hmm. was um, was beyond the capability of any institution or individual, even, you know, even all doctors, all medical practitioners in Philadelphia um, couldn't possibly handle uh, even a fraction of the um, number of people who were sick uh, every day. So... Um, a kind of ragtag band of volunteers, sort of civic leaders and merchants and led by the mayor of Philadelphia, Matthew Clarkson, um, organized themselves in an emergency committee to just meet the basic needs of the people hmm. and um, to organize relief drives so that anyone who had any supplies or money to contribute would... Uh, to help provide shelter for people who were homeless and food for people who um, had nothing and um, basic medical care, if nothing like a, a bed or something resembling a bed yeah. um, for 
for the sick people. And it was just, it, it was a challenge just to get people to transport the sick yeah. and to bury the dead, much less provide, you know, nursing care mm -hmm. for, for patients. And um, it was uh, in 1793, based on the erroneous belief that people of African descent were immune to yellow fever, that um, Benjamin Rush, the uh, most prominent doctor in Philadelphia and founding father, illustrious citizen, um, pleaded with the leaders of the Free African Society, essentially the, the Free Black Community of Philadelphia, to um, organize the black community hmm. to provide, to, to transport the sick, to provide nursing care and help bury the dead. Um, and in the um, similarly, alas, similarly erroneous belief that doing so would help improve the condition of uh, black people and uh, would perhaps um, dispel uh, dispel some of the uh, myths and um, you know racist beliefs about them. The Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, the leaders of the Free African Society, did organize the black community and um, and essentially the thanks they got were uh, accusations of profiteering. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some people, Rush and other leaders, were, in fact, quite grateful. And Rush himself acknowledged that he was wrong to believe that black people were immune because black people did get sick and did die of yellow fever. Um, so anyway, just meeting those basic needs mm -hmm. was beyond the capacity of the city. And it was, in some ways, you know, a minor miracle that enough volunteers stepped forward to to meet even you know a fraction yeah. of those of those needs, and unfortunately that became um, a habit later later in the 1790s as yellow fever returned. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So what was a lazaretto, and where did the term come from? Lazaretto is an Italian term that uh, referred to either uh, an isolation hospital for patients with contagious diseases or a facility for quarantining ships or other vessels. And often it referred to both, mm -hmm. uh, a quarantine station that included an isolation hospital. Um, and the name comes from the uh, biblical figure Lazarus, okay. uh, a, a beggar covered with sores who became the patron saint of lepers. Mm -hmm. And so the, and the, um, the diminutive form of his name became the word Lazaretto, which was... Uh, used to designate the um, first quarantine stations and isolation hospitals in the um, in Venice Harbor um, in the 15th century, when um, plague was a recurring threat mm -hmm. in uh, particularly in busy Mediterranean commercial seaports like Venice, with um, who traded frequently with um, you know Middle Eastern ports mm -hmm. and plague generally traveled from Central Asia through the Middle East to uh, the Mediterranean and parts of Europe and North Africa. Mm -hmm. And would, I mean, is this just one of these words that would have been much better known in earlier times and just kind of a slip from our or is it was it more specialized yeah. during that period? Yeah. What a fascinating question. And 
I can't fully answer that. Yeah. The um, yes, it was. Um, I think educated people um, knew of the Lazaretto as something that one encountered when one traveled through the Mediterranean, uh-huh. and um, they knew something about the history of plague epidemics mm-hmm. that spawned the the Mediterranean Lazarettos. But um, in the United States, um, there were, you know, almost every major seaport had some kind of quarantine facility at some point in the 19th century. Um, Three of them that I'm aware of, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Savannah, Georgia, Hmm. called their quarantine stations Lazarettos. Okay. New York, Boston, Norfolk, Charleston uh, huh. did not use the term Lazaretto. Okay. Why? I have no idea. Yeah. I I suspect maybe a kind of um, posturing of like civilized, yeah. <laughs> like continental savoir faire. Yeah. But um, but I really that's just complete conjecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So as you as you kind of spelled out earlier, the, the this new Lazaretto is set up in 1801 in in response to these yellow fever epidemics. I mean, what did it take to set it up? And you know, what were the early experiences there? Was it seen as an immediate success? Or yeah, tell us a bit about that. Everyone kind of held their breath and hoped. I I just have this image of like thousands of Philadelphians looking down river and crossing their fingers, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and. The, and their toes like please please let this work um so uh it was quite expensive it's you know uh, a a very large facility um there's an interesting newspaper kind of press release that appeared in the in the philadelphia papers when uh the board of health first purchased the property and decided to build the lazaretto there they say um something about expedition, utility, economy, and beauty will meet each other in this uh, public facility, which is kind of um, bureaucraties for, (laughs) um, we're going to do this quickly. We're not going to waste your money. Um, It will work, and it'll be something you can be proud of. Mm -hmm. So... um, it was meant to be stately, to project a kind of uh, sense of confidence and control. Mm-hmm. Um, viewed from the river, the whole sort of campus was symmetrical and uh, the sort of architectural antecedents are kind of like mm. English country estates uh-huh. in, in some ways. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there was nothing like it in, in North America at the time. Huh. It was... It was really one of a kind. It was it was state of the art, and um, right off the bat, uh, the very very first entry in the first volume of Board of Health minutes that um, that survives from uh, 1801, the first entry is about a ship arriving from Liverpool. The ship was called the Venture Again, and uh, it uh, basically. Um, half of its passengers had died on the voyage of typhus and the other half, every single one who survived was desperately ill upon 
arrival at the Lazaretto, including the crew, except for uh, the the first mate, only the only healthy person on board this Jesus. terrible ship, and um, and that was what it was like from day one at the Lazaretto. <laughs> it's kind of for wow. for many years it was sort of feast or famine. There'd be no activity, or yeah. you know, every every ship that was inspected would be cleared to proceed to the city and then all of a sudden a ship would arrive with um 50 60 100 seriously ill uh passengers aboard and they needed to be taken care of and fed and clothed and you know yeah and furnished with beds and bedding um right away and um it was uh it was just Crisis after crisis, punctuated by long periods of inactivity and boredom. Yeah. So the part two of your book is called "Managing the New Normal," and is is this the new normal that you're describing? Um, the new normal. Yeah, by new normal, I mean the process by which quarantine gradually became uh, accepted as part of. Uh, city life as part of you know the um the cost of doing business literally mm -hmm. uh included dealing with the hassle of quarantine inspection occasionally detention um nobody ever liked quarantine yeah everybody everybody resented it or just outright hated it it was inconvenient uh the delay alone was inconvenient yep. for for merchants, it was uh, an unwanted extra cost. Merchandise could spoil, yep. um, and it's a real threat uh, to capitalism, right? Shutting down yeah, is a real shut. Yeah, it's exactly. It's you know, at best, slowing, if not actually obstructing, the flow of goods, yep. which is essential to capitalism. And um, so, so everybody was always complaining about it. Mm -hmm. um, but, and it's remarkable that quarantine survived for so long. And I think, you know, the biggest reason is there's only one thing uh, that's worse for business than quarantine. <laughs> and that's a and that's an epidemic. Yeah, right. Epidemics are really, really bad for business. Right, right. And um, and I think I think everyone understood that yeah. on some level. There were there were very vitriolic debates among doctors, especially about what caused yellow fever and whether quarantine was an appropriate response. Yeah. There were, uh, there were those who, who were really honestly in the minority who believed that yellow fever was contagious was spread from person to person. And it originated in, uh, the West Indies and in tropical climates and was brought to, uh, places like Philadelphia aboard these ships. And, uh, there were others like Benjamin Rush who believed that who were really in the majority who believed that yellow fever was not contagious. It wasn't coming from the West Indies. It originated locally in accumulations of filth mm -hmm. um, and uh, under certain meteorological conditions that accumulations of filth could give off disease-causing emanations or miasmas. Mm -hmm. um, and people like Rush uh, thought quarantine was a complete waste of time and money and resources. Um, and yet... Even when um, no respectable doctors believed in contagion anymore, in, believed that yellow fever and plague and other 
uh, diseases, uh, epidemic diseases were actually spread from person to person. Hmm. Um, even when no, no doctors believed in contagion any longer, um, quarantine still survived because quarantine was actually not based on a belief in contagion. And this is part of my argument in the book. I explain how um, it was believed that under certain circumstances, a certain kind of contamination in the air could be transported over long distances, in particularly in the enclosed cargo holds of seagoing vessels um, in hot weather. And um, that this contaminated air brought from places where yellow fever was more or less endemic or much more common could then cause epidemics when they arrived in Philadelphia, whether the disease was spread from person to person or not. Mm-hmm. So it was that, um, you know, it's a strange situation where the doctors in public were kind of staking their reputations on their position uh, regarding whether yellow fever was contagious or not, when in fact that was irrelevant uh-huh. to the actual practice of quarantine. Mm-hmm. And um, at the Lazaretto, the, the Lazaretto physician, the quarantine master, and the Board of Health were often much more concerned with the state of arriving cargo uh-huh. than they were with the health of passengers and sailors. Hmm. Um, at one point, you talk about social efficacy, and you say that you know managing disease was not enough. You also needed to do all this kind of social social work in the sense of reassuring people and doing like you know calming them down. I just yeah, like it sounds like you know, like you know and it's politically contested. So talk about that side of the work. I mean, you know, yeah. you're not just dealing with quarantining people and like healing them. There's a lot more to be done. Yeah, and. Um... So I argue that quarantine worked in two respects. I mean, based on everything we know today about how yellow fever spreads, uh, there is a way in which um, the the aggressive quarantine, um, or at least occasionally aggressive quarantine as practiced at the Lazaretto, probably um, reduced the chances for all the different kind of ecological, all the elements that constitute the uh, ecology that allows yellow fever to spread epidemically um, reduce the the um, number of opportunities for those elements to all be in the same place at the same mm-hmm. time. But I also argue that quarantine worked in the sense of social efficacy, which is a term uh, borrowed from medical anthropologists. Um, and it means that efficacy is not only... Um, measured by the kind of um, uh, biomedical effect of uh, a drug or a policy yep. in, in, in actually preventing um, pathogens from infecting humans, um, but also in, um, in the sense of, of public health, social efficacy means... Um, taking concerted, visible public action Mm. to express the collective resolve of a population to fight back, to um, resist, and to prevent recurrence of these epidemics. It's it's really, it's a, um, it's a product of the trauma, the lasting trauma inflicted on the psyche of a population 
by these devastating epidemics that something had to be done. It had to be big. It had to be visible Mm -hmm. and it had to be ongoing. Um, So even if quarantine did nothing to actually, uh, you know, of course, quarantine didn't prevent mosquitoes from, um, from arriving in Philadelphia, but yeah. So I argue there was this sort of ecological, probably an ecological effect of, of quarantine in minimizing epidemics. But even if it didn't, the fact that the city was expressing its collective determination to survive and to thrive and to grow in the face of this threat was critical to the uh, to the survival of quarantine as a as an institution. Yeah, that's really good. Um you have, a, I mean, the, people just need to read your book. There's a, a, most, a lot of the chapters are these just wonderfully rich case studies. Um, you know, sadly, but probably not surprisingly, a lot of these ideas and attempts to control disease are caught up in other terrible ideas about race and poverty and immigrants and these other categories of marginalized and oppressed folks. But you have this really interesting chapter on Tobias Smith, a so-called mischievous boy, so, you know, what did, just to give like re, uh, uh, listeners an example, like, you know, what, what were you able to draw out of uh, Smith's story to kind of tell something larger for your book? Yeah, um, what, a, uh, what a crazy story. The, um, so, so the new, um, the new Lazaretto did sort of succeed in, uh, in preventing outbreaks, the um, frequency and severity of yellow fever outbreaks diminished drastically hmm. after the Lazaretto was the new Lazaretto was opened in 1801. Now, um, that's kind of post hoc sure. ergo proctor yeah. hoc uh, reasoning. It's uh, there. There must have been many different many factors uh, in addition to the the Lazaretto that were responsible for that. And historians and epidemiologists still kind of uh, aren't entirely sure why that happened, but um, there still were um, breakthrough outbreaks of yellow fever, including in 1805. And whenever that happened, obviously the the Board of Health was under a microscope and, um, and it was, you know, determined, its whole purpose was to avoid these kind of catastrophes. And um, so when yellow fever did return, as it did in 1805, they had to, um, in addition to responding to it, they had to explain it. And um, what they did in 1805 was they found a convenient scapegoat. Um, and that was this this poor 11-year-old orphan boy named Tobias Smith. Um, we don't know that much about his life, but he was... Um, he was as a as a young child. He was in the Philadelphia Almshouse, which almost certainly means he was orphaned. Uh, he was either orphaned or abandoned by his parents, and um, he ended up being indentured as a servant to this um, uh, business owner in um, in the uh, Riverside neighborhood of Philadelphia, and. Um, he lived in uh, a room above the shop and near the um, uh, Catherine Street Wharf, I believe it was. Um, and um, his 
fellow employee, uh, Tobias was around 11 in 1805. His fellow employee was a 20-year-old named Peter Young. And um, somehow Tobias Smith and Peter Young ended up um, in a boat headed downriver towards the Lazaretto. And um, at that point, accounts diverge as to what happened. But um, according to the Board of Health, Peter Young and Tobias Smith were violating, flagrantly violating quarantine regulations mm. by um, coming into contact with ships that were undergoing quarantine at the Lazaretto. And um, it's possible that they boarded one or more of those ships. One account had it that Peter Young was visiting his brother, who was um, mm. who was on one of those ships that was uh, being detained in quarantine. Uh, another account has it that the two boys were the, um, were uh, selling selling goods to the um, passengers mm -hmm. who were undergoing quarantine. In any case, it was against the rules. Uh, really, really not a smart idea. And as soon as they got back to town. Um, well, a day or two later, uh, both Peter Young and Tobias Smith got sick with the symptoms of yellow fever. And um, Peter Young died. Tobias Smith survived. But right in their neighborhood, yellow fever began to spread mm -hmm. um, immediately after they fell ill and then spread a little bit uh, more widely in the city of Philadelphia. So um, after the fact, the Board of Health spent a lot of time and energy trying to reconstruct the events that ignited this outbreak. And they ended up um, pinning the blame on the, the one person who survived mm -hmm. from these initial cases, Tobias Smith. And they, um, they interrogated him repeatedly. He reportedly changed his story a couple of times. Mm denied going downriver, then admitted going downriver, but denied going to the Lazaretto, didn't know what the Lazaretto was or where it was. Um, and um, he was, uh, yeah, he was treated quite poorly by the Board of Health, who was really just desperate to explain away this outbreak yeah. and to um, insist that it, the board, had all the right policies and mechanisms in place, but this one scofflaw, or these two yeah. scofflaws, rather, had um, had thwarted their quarantine and introduced the disease into the city. Mm -hmm. um, so it's um, it's kind of classic uh, CYA mode for yeah. <laughs> um, for bureaucrats and um, and understandable, but uh, yeah, just unfortunate that well, Tobias Smith was fortunate enough to survive yellow fever. Um, but the fact that he survived put him in the crosshairs mm -hmm. of this Board of Health investigation. No, it's a really interesting story. Um, so the third part of your book is called Crisis, Statesmanship, and in Decline, uh, 1853 to 1895. And by 1853, the Lazaretto was well-established. It's been there for over 50 years. So what, you know, like what leads this well-established institution into crisis at that point? Well, um, the Lazaretto is indeed well-established. Quarantine is um, a still a resented but generally accepted part of urban life and commerce. Um, 
what happens in 1853 is there's another outbreak of yellow fever, certainly a small one by the standards of the 1790s. Mm-hmm. But after, at that point, 33 years of no yellow fever in Philadelphia, any, even just a few cases, mm-hmm. is um, unacceptable and terrifying. So, um, uh, yeah, in 1853, it was, um, uh, it started with a ship from Cuba that had arrived at the Lazaretto. It was inspected there by the Lazaretto physician, um, Dr. Stokes, Thomas Jefferson Perkins Stokes. Um, And uh, Stokes inspected the vessel and the quarantine master, Matthew Van Dusen, inspected the cargo. Um, And they decided that it should be... um, ventilated overnight there were some there was word that there had been illnesses and possibly a couple of deaths on the ship during the voyage from cuba um stokes ordered a kind of cursory cleaning of the ship and then the next day allowed it to proceed to the city Hmm. shortly after its arrival cases of yellow fever appeared in the immediate vicinity of the wharf where uh, where it docked, and um, and again yellow fever spread, familiar dynamic. You know, thankfully, it didn't spread to the entire city, and it didn't you know didn't kill thousands. Um, but uh, it was still uh, scary, mm-hmm. and um, and an explanation had to be found. And this time the scapegoat was not some, you know, hapless 11-year-old orphan. It was Dr. Stokes, mm-hmm. uh, the Lazaretto physician and the quarantine master. The son of the son and brother of um, uh, people who died of yellow fever during that outbreak was actually a lawyer, which was not good news for <laughs> Stokes. And um, once this lawyer found out that Stokes had allowed this ship to proceed mm-hmm. after just you know less than 24 hours of detention, um, he was on the warpath. And um, he succeeded. He wrote to the newspapers saying, you know, this gross dereliction of duty killed my father and my brother. Um, and um, and Stokes and Van Dusen, the Lazarus physician and quarantine master, were actually prosecuted hmm. for negligence in allowing the ship to proceed. It was the only time that had ever happened in the history of the Lazaretto. In the end, they were both acquitted, but um, it didn't. The whole episode did not reflect well upon the institution of quarantine and by extension, um, the Board of Health. Mm -hmm. A couple of years later, um, uh, a prominent member of the uh, Philadelphia doctor who was a member of the Board of Health began to organize um, a network of public health officials in major ports, first major port cities in the United States, and then eventually um, all major cities, including some inland cities, uh, to meet annually to discuss quarantine and to discuss other um, pressing public health matters. Mm -hmm. And these national 
quarantine and sanitary conferences uh, began in 1856 or seven. Um, I think 1857 mm -hmm. and um, in Philadelphia. And the idea among a lot of these doctors and public health officials was to agree upon a uniform system of quarantine everywhere. And ideally a uniform kind of set of best practices mm -hmm. for public health that could be followed by all cities. And um, so um, many of the delegates at those conventions actually advocated abolishing quarantine entirely. Um, that uh, did not gain um, much support, but uh, everyone agreed that quarantine was inefficient and um, unnecessarily burdensome mm -hmm. and not as effective as it ought to be. So, um, so things weren't looking too great for the ins institution of quarantine in the late 1850s. It was only the outbreak of the Civil War that put an end to these annual conferences mm -hmm. and to the uniform kind of public health code that they were in the process of developing. Parenthetically, um, some of the delegates uh, later, about 15 years later, some of the key delegates from those quarantine conventions um, began to meet again and um, instituted the American Public Health Association, okay. which became and is still today yeah. the leading public health organization in the in the country. You had a, um, you had a great chapter uh, later in the book about uh, the role of kind of women's work in, in keeping this place going and, um, you know, something that's hard to see sometimes as historians. So tell us a bit about the darkest hour of 1870. Yeah. Um, yeah. Women are virtually absent from the records of the Lazaretto. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, women got yellow fever and typhus and uh, and died of those diseases and were, you know, treated at the Lazaretto. But women worked at the Lazaretto as well. Um, their work was mostly invisible and um, underappreciated, if not entirely unappreciated. They worked as, especially as nurses. Mm -hmm. um, and when um now men worked as nurses as well but uh the nurses as far as i've been able to tell the nurses were mostly women mm -hmm. um and you know as i said there were uh times of acute crisis punctuated by long periods of inactivity mm -hmm. and boredom but in the times of crisis you know it was absolutely urgent to provide basic accommodations and care and food and drink uh, and, and beds to um, dozens or, or even hundreds of patients um, all of a sudden. So um, this work was critical. In fact, um, in one chapter, I examine the medical care, the, the kinds of treatment that were administered mm -hmm. to patients at the Lazaretto, especially yellow fever and typhus patients. And um, I try to explain the surprisingly high rate of recovery of patients with those often fatal diseases at the Lazaretto. Yellow fever is still, you know, considered incurable today, mm -hmm. which only means that there's no single specific and widely effective treatment for yellow fever. 
typhus certainly would have is treatable with antibiotics today, but um, uh, we did not have antibiotics in right. uh, in the nineteenth century. So, in any case, uh, one reason I argue why uh, almost ninety percent of patients treated at the Lazaretto Hospital recovered um, is boils down to essentially nursing care, mm-hmm. um, providing food and drink, clean, warm clothing, clean bedding, place to sleep, rest, yep. um, and um, all which and were things to, were not to, available to many people at that time, especially poor people. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and even just providing a bed, you know, would be a challenge when they, when the Lazaretto was overwhelmed mm-hmm. with with patients. Um, so anyway, I call that the care cure. Yeah. And um, I I question sort of our well historians and and just people in general's um, uh, preoccupation with specific, especially pharmaceutical yeah. and um, high tech forms of medical treatment in um and and occasionally neglecting the provision of just basic nursing care and and yeah. um treating you know treating symptoms and uh Taking care anyway of each other. 1870 yeah. Yeah. 1870 is a time when this um this came to the fore and one of the few times when actually the work of women is made visible hmm. at the Lazaretto um a ship arrives from uh, Jamaica in terrible condition. Uh, one old timer who worked at the Lazaretto said it was um, the filthiest vessel he had ever seen in his life. Um, and uh, all of the crew um, were, except one, I believe, were sick with yellow fever when uh, the ship arrived at the Lazaretto. Um, unfortunately, the the case was probably bungled by the Lazaretto physician who paid for it with his life. Um, and yellow fever, I, I go into quite a lot of detail because this outbreak was documented more abundantly and more minutely than any mm-hmm. other since it happened, you know, in the Board of Health's own quarantine station. Mm-hmm. For the first time, yellow fever spread widely among the Lazaretto staff hmm. and among uh, neighbors who lived nearby. Um, this had never happened before and was absolutely terrifying. It also spread to the city in one particular neighborhood. And, um, you know, the total number of deaths was just uh, a couple of dozen or so mm-hmm. at the Lazaretto and in the city. But still, um, that was, uh, you know, Lazaretto spreading in within the institution itself, um, killing the Lazaretto physician, killing the quarantine master, killing the head nurse, killing the matron who was the essentially the superintendent's wife, mm-hmm. um, that was unprecedented, completely unprecedented, and um, and terrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the Board of Health did go out of their way to pay tribute to Eve Kugler, who was the matron, who was in part responsible for cooking meals and providing supplies, mm-hmm. basic supplies for, uh, and, you know, cleaning the, the facility, um, the basic day-to-day operations. 
Um, the Board of Health paid tribute to her services and to those of Fanny Gartrell, who was a longtime nurse and the head nurse there, um, and praised them for their dedication, um, loyalty, and hard work. Um, and the fact that they lost their lives during this outbreak is, you know, one time, unfortunately, when the when the work of women becomes visible. But then there's another woman who comes on the scene in a surprising way. Um, when Eve Kugler, the matron, fell ill, um, a friend of hers from the city um, named Mary Riddle came to visit her and to uh, help take care of her. Hmm. So um, under normal circumstances during an outbreak, nobody from the outside would be able to enter the lazaretto and no one from inside the lazaretto would be able to leave. Mm -hmm. But in 1870, all hell broke loose and essentially the the staff hmm. were too terrified to show up for work or simply fled sure. entirely. Yeah. And um, discipline had broken down. It was just chaos. Yeah. And um, at the lazaretto itself, and Mary Riddle, who had come to... She was a widow, had been married to the former mayor of Pittsburgh. Um, she came down from Philadelphia to um, to visit her friend, and she saw the chaos around her, and she said, all right, this has to stop. And Mary Riddle, this outsider, took charge of everything at the Lazaretto. <laughs> she cooked, she cleaned, um, she cared for patients. She rounded up additional volunteers and, you know, put those members of the staff who she was able to coax back into work to, um, you know, back in on their jobs. And, um, and somehow word of this uh, got to a journalist who published a tribute to Mary Riddle <laughs> um, a few days later in one of the Philadelphia papers. And, um, and for me, it's not necessarily those three individuals whose work was especially important, yeah. although, um, it, you know, it's, it's noteworthy. Um, but it just um, it just points to the fact that um, the work of caregiving and of cleaning and feeding is um, absolutely essential, often... I would argue the difference between life and death mm -hmm. and is um, mostly unappreciated and invisible and um, often done by women. Yep. And I think the, the um, disaster of 1870 just should remind us to um, not lose sight of that kind of work and that kind of caregiving yeah. in our world. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Um, so uh, you're, you're at the end of the book, I mean, I think the whole the whole thing, like, you know, you, you point out that the controversy and that, you know, quarantine being a political minefield, as you say, it never goes away, really. You know, it, it continues on. But what what finally led to the Lazaretto's closing in 1895? Yeah. Um, oh, it's um, it's like it's like watching a. Um, horrible car accident happen in slow motion and um yeah in, in my book i i spend um a bit of time examining um the work of um 
Dr. W.T. Robinson, who was, um, in a sense, the um, the hero of my book mm-hmm. because he's a um, a physician and a quarantine. He was Lazaretto physician in the late 1870s and early 1880s. And um, he was also an amateur historian who began writing a history. He, he began essentially writing my book <laughs> in the, you know, around 1880 using the, the Board of Health oh, cool. archives, <laughs> yeah. the same Board of Health archives that I used. Uh-huh. Um, he never was able to finish it, but he, he serialized it in the newspaper he ran. He was a newspa- newspaper publisher hmm. and physician and Lazaretto physician <laughs> for five years. Um he just was an unusually skillful physician and political operator. Mm-hmm. All Lazaretta physicians were political appointees. They owed their position to their political loyalty to the party of the governor because mm-hmm. they were appointed by the governor. Um, and Robinson was no different. But um, he was a skillful physician who actually treated really um, – desperate cases of yellow fever successfully. Um, I don't think he lost... A, oh, I think he did lose one patient uh, to yellow fever of all the ones he treated during mm. his time at the Lazaretto. But um, in addition to that, he understood the political stakes uh, of his job uh, better than anyone else. He negotiated these very difficult uh, situations with determination, resolve, and political savvy um, in a way that no other Board of Health member or Lazaretto physician had done in the history of the institution. So it's, you know, I thought it was worth, um, and certainly a lesson for public health officials today (laughs) in how to handle difficult, how to handle the politics of public health and public health always has been, is now, and always will be fundamentally political. It's about the distribution of resources in society, uh, public health policies of political effects and consequences. Anyway, Robinson understood all that better than anyone. He knew how to listen to people who were not happy with his policies. He knew how to make them feel heard. Yeah. He knew how to relax the rules when it was safe enough to do so. And he knew when to absolutely not relax the rules at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but after... Robinson's time, there were there was a succession of Lazaretto physicians who were um, either incompetent, um, impossible to get along with, or you know some combination of both of those traits. And um, what hap- what happened was um, a series of um, increasingly vicious uh, disagreements and um, accusations flying back and forth between the Board of Health and the Lazaretto, a uh, 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 series of Lazaretto physicians in the um, late 1880s and early 1890s. And um, it's just, um, it's just painful to watch because it's just a combination of, um, you know, uh, sort of political tone deafness Mm -hmm. and um, thin-skinned, thin-skinned men, um, like, 
feeling their honor being impugned <laughs> yeah. and lashing out. It's just sort of yeah. the worst qualities, the worst qualities of white men, yeah. you know, on display. Um, and um, yeah, it also provides a, a lesson for politicians and public health officials today in, in how not to respond to yeah. um, threats of disease. And so there was a threat of cholera uh, a couple of times. Um, and um, it was just a, uh, just a really, like I said, slow motion car wreck mm -hmm. of um, animosity between the Board of Health and the a series of Lazaretto physicians. And um, the Lazaretto itself did not survive mm -hmm. um, uh, these episodes. And, um, you know, essentially there were real estate interests in Delaware County where the Lazaretto was located just outside Philadelphia that um, saw an opportunity for um, to make money on land near this quarantine station. The problem was no one wanted to live in uh, the neighborhood of yeah. Pest House, as they called it, particularly remembering what had happened in 1870 mm -hmm. when, Laz when yellow fever had spread beyond the Lazaretto's boundaries. So um, it took a couple of tries, but the Delaware County real estate interests succeeded in passing uh, legislation in the state capital in Harrisburg to shut down the Lazaretto, which um, finally happened after the quarantine season of 1895. Mm. And the, um, the, the site had a couple of interesting afterlives after that as a essentially a kind of country club uh -huh. and then a um, seaplane base and flight school. Okay. Um, uh, but it was its years as a quarantine station ended in 1895, and, uh, just around the time that uh, Ellis Island and Angel Island and the well-known sort of federally operated yeah. um, immigration stations were being built. Uh, you know, amongst other hats in the world, you're the vice president of the Lazaretto Preservation Association. So, I mean, what's there now at the site? Yeah, it, um, because of these strange afterlives, um, unlike most quarantine stations, which uh, demolished, were demolished or fell into uh, disrepair over the years. Um, the Lazaretto um, was not demolished and did not fall into disrepair. Mm -hmm. It survived as a, as a physical site. A couple of the buildings um, have been lost over the mm -hmm. decades, but, um, but the main building survives and four of the um, smaller outbuildings survive today. That's so cool. And um, coincidentally, just at the time that I discovered this place and the, the physical site began to grab hold of me and refused to let go, um, the site itself was the object of a preservation battle um, in uh, the, the seaplane base and marina and flight school that had operated there from uh, 1915 to 2000, finally shut down. When the family who ran it, you know, re retired and 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 closed, uh, uh, ceased operations there, and um, at that point, the property was sold to a developer who wanted to build to demolish everything and build an airport parking facility, because it's uh, right next door to yeah, Philadelphia International sure. Airport. Yeah, um, that did not happen, thankfully, um, in part because. Tinicum Township, which is the municipality 
in which the lazaretto is located, managed to, uh, with help from the state legislature, buy the property and save the buildings. And um, the initial plan was to build uh, a new fire station for the township and banquet hall and parking lot on the unbuilt portion hmm. of the Lazaretto site. Um, that created its own preservation battle when um, local preservation organizations fought against this proposal on the theory that it would, while it wouldn't demolish any of the existing buildings, it would, um, you know, it would ruin the historical integrity of the site. Um, you know, general practice in preservation is when you have a historic site that has survived, you don't build anything new on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a lawsuit. It was nasty. Um, uh, fast forward a few months and um, the lawsuit was settled. Um, and the, um, the provisions of the settlement were that the township was allowed to go ahead and build a fire station parking lot and banquet facility and the remainder of the property would be um, preserved under the authority of a nonprofit group um, called the Lazaretto Preservation Association of Tinicum Township Um, and that group would consist of representatives from the township and representatives from preservation organizations Um, and that's the board that that I sit on uh, today and um, it's been a real education. I didn't, you know, I don't know about you, but I didn't study historic preservation no. <laughs> or public history in graduate school at all. It was the last thing I thought I would be involved in. But lo and behold, it's a rich and fascinating field, also politically controversial. Sure. Um, and uh, it's been a real education for me. And we, um, the main building of the Lazaretto was recently restored at great cost. Um, and uh, I encourage everyone who listens to this podcast to visit it. We're in the process of developing um, a set of exhibits. Right now, there's an audio tour. There's actually two different audio oh, tours cool. that visitors can take on their smartphones. It's available at uh, lazaretto.site. And um, we're, we have all kinds of events planned. There's going to be a, a book launch party there for on May 21st for um, to celebrate this uh, this book's birth, and um, more events planned for the future and uh, exhibits there on site. So it's um, it's an ongoing adventure. I never thought I'd be involved in something like this, but um, I'm uh, I'm completely hooked for better or for worse. Well, that's wonderful, David. I can't. I really want to emphasize to listeners that this is a beautifully written book. I, I really, I, I really enjoyed it. So, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been great. It's my pleasure, Lee. And um, yeah, it's been uh, it's been a fun conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on twitter at sts underscore news or on youtube at people's things our podcast is distributed by the new books network the leading platform 
for academic podcasts so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks.